Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Welcome to Taking Stock. I'm your host, Mandy Johnston, and we've got an exciting lineup of guests and topics for you on this week's show. We've got Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times, who's going to be discussing the ERSI and Irish Fiscal Advisory Council's recent musings on the Irish economy. And we'll be examining why the government are now considering a top-up tax for big business. Later on, I'll be joined by Tom Wainwright of The Economist magazine. They've done a major study about how prevalent gaming is in our economy and in our society. So I'll be looking at what they found as we discuss how gaming is having a significant influence on society in the 21st century. And finally, it's not personal, it's just business. We'll be talking about the hit series that everyone is glued to, Succession. Join us as we explore the family business in the media and beyond. We always love hearing from you, so you can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. First up today, take a listen to this. Singing in the old bar, swinging with the old stars, living for the fame. Kissing in the blue dark, playing pool and wild dots, video games. That was the unmistakable Lana Del Rey with video games because gaming values have soared in recent years and that's mostly thanks to the fact that there's smartphones sitting in every single pocket, uh, meaning that the reach of gaming for advertisers and the potential to influence culture in the 21st century has truly changed the game. The Economist has been looking into this issue and I'm delighted to be joined now by Tom Wainwright, who's been writing about this topic. Tom, thank you very much for joining us today. Good to be here, thanks. Now Tom, I guess the image of who's involved and who partakes in gaming has changed radically in recent years. Where does it sit now in terms of its uh, value on the chain of where we get our fun, where we spend our leisure time? How does it kind of factor into TV, video and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, so worldwide um, this year, people will spend about $185 billion on video games. And that's the kind of figure that I don't know about you, but to me, it, it kind of doesn't mean anything unless you put it in context, right? So compared with other media, that means that video games are worth about five times more than what people will spend at the cinema box office this year, for example, um, and about five times more as well than recorded music. So pretty hefty. And something that surprised me when I was doing research for this report that we published this week was that the video games business is worth substantially more even than video streaming. So things like Netflix, Disney Plus, you know, we hear a lot about this, but actually spending on video games is about two thirds more than spending on video streaming. It's still a bit less than people spend on cable and satellite TV worldwide, but it's forecast to overtake that within about two years. So it's it's becoming, you know, if you add together all of TV, TV is still bigger. But video games is, is kind of creeping up on it, and it's already much bigger than music, bigger than cinema, way bigger than, uh, you know, I'm sorry to say, newspapers and radio. Um, and it's becoming, you know, it's, it's vying with TV now to be the kind of main home entertainment medium. Yeah, for sure. I think the figures are certainly eye-watering, but what really struck me was where it sat in the sort of top 10. And maybe it's a generational thing, but I certainly didn't understand, uh, you know, its 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 place in the chain as it now sits. But when you talk about those figures there, the 185 billion, is that before we start looking at anything else, like the hardware that's involved in the advertising? Is that just the the streaming element of it or what does that relate to? 
That's spending on games uh, software, I guess. So that would be buying video games in, you know, in, in boxes, the old-fashioned way. Uh, it would be subscriptions to game libraries, which people sometimes do now with things like um, Apple Arcade or Xbox Game Pass. Um, it would include in-game spending. So this is where people increasingly spend money on, you know, new kind of virtual outfits in games or um, new power-ups, access to new levels, all that kind of stuff. It wouldn't include hardware spending, though. So if you go and buy a new PlayStation or something or a new um, TV to, to play them on, that's excluded. And it doesn't include advertising, the figure that I gave you. And advertising is, is obviously big. I mean, in mobile games, I think advertising is probably the single biggest source of revenue, in fact. So if you add those on, it will be worth more still. Um, I was just quoting consumer spending to try to do a kind of apples to apples comparison with those other industries. But if you roll in advertising and hardware, then um, game spending is, is bigger still. Yeah, and it's it's very difficult, I, I would imagine, to quantify the advertising and separate it out from the streaming services and the apps. But let's talk a little bit about the age and the demographic of who's actually using games now. Uh, because, again, when I read your report, it slightly surprised me. Uh, can you talk us through the figures there, please? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I, I think the old stereotype is that gamers are kind of teenagers and probably boys, you know, but I think both of those things have changed. So... Age-wise now, I, I think gaming seems to have expanded up and down the age spectrum, if you like. And, you know, you get games now aimed at people like my three-year-old son who happily plays iPad games, the sort that didn't exist when, when I was his age, obviously. Um, and at the other end, um, you know, my parents now are, are daily wordlers. Um, and so what you see is that, the, I mean, I saw one figure here in the UK from Ofcom, which is that among people in their 50s and 60s, more than half now play video games, which surprised me. And we're talking, you know, mobile games often in these cases. It's not that they're all playing Call of Duty on a PlayStation, but, um, you know, it's mobile games mean that more people are playing, even though actually console-wise, another thing that surprised me, um, one figure I saw was a, a survey showing that there are more console gamers aged 35 to 45 than there are aged 15 to 25. So gamers are getting older. Um, as they get older, I guess they have bigger budgets to spend on on things like consoles. And as they get, you know, much older, they have more time as well. And I think something that interests me for the future is what's going to happen when today's generation of, of really enthusiastic gamers hit retirement. Because if you look at TV consumption patterns, in people in their 70s and above are the ones who watch real kind of mammoth sessions of TV. I mean, in, in the UK. I think the average among people over 70 is is about seven hours a day of TV because a lot of people have it on in the background. And I'm interested, you know, in let's say in 20 years time when some of the people who are now in middle age and are interested in games, when they retire and have all this extra time on their hands, I do wonder if we're going to see a big boost in games consumption because you've got a generation with suddenly more free time um, who have been interested in games for many years. And I, I suspect that we may see people spending a chunk of their retirement playing games. Mm. And maybe that brings us neatly on to the metaverse and virtual reality, which, you know, uh, Meta had anticipated would be the next sort of frontier in this. Um, How is that going for them? I mean, a lot of people are sort of surprised that it's not progressing at the rate that they might have thought last year. But do you see that this is the next progression where it becomes a kind of a virtual reality situation rather than you're sitting in your living room engaging with someone somewhere else? You can actually feel that you're somewhere else with someone else yeah i i mean we'll see but i i'm a bit skeptical about virtual reality i mean i 
Meta have sold quite a lot of the the, the Quest 2 um, virtual reality headsets, which were very popular during lockdowns. They sold them, by all accounts, at, at a loss. Um, and so uptake was, was reasonably good. But it's still, it's, it's yet to take off in a big way. It, in particular, people seem not to be using virtual reality for much other than games at the moment. I think the Zuckerberg idea was that People would use VR for, you know, work meetings that, you know, maybe you and I would be having a conversation like this in VR. Um, maybe people would be using it for, you know, not just games, but for work, for shopping, for socializing. And it hasn't really happened. I mean, there are, you know, it, it's, it's successful as a kind of niche thing for people who like VR gaming, but it's not really gone much beyond that. Hmm. And, you know, this could change. Apple is expected to bring out its first headset later this year. A lot of people think that even if VR doesn't become a kind of huge thing, AR might. That's augmented reality, and that's slightly different. It's, it's AR is where you see video graphics kind of projected onto the real world, if, if you like. And that you know, you can imagine that having more everyday uses than VR. Mm. Um, but VR for now is it's it remains a niche. You know, it, it hasn't yet become the kind of ubiquitous. Thing that we spend all day doing, which which uh, Zuckerberg, it, it seems, hoped it might. Um, yeah, cer- uh, cer- it remains to be seen whether it could in future. Certainly not mainstream yet. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnson. I'm talking to Tom Wainwright from The Economist about the growth in gaming. Back to those other te- tech companies for a second, Tom. Who else is active in this space other than Meta and what kind of money are they putting into it? Well, it seems they all want a piece of it at the moment. And I think one of the interesting things that's happened in the, in the industry is that the big tech companies have got involved. And so we see companies like Apple, for example, which has got involved mostly as a kind of landlord of the Apple App Store. Um, it's not that Apple makes a lot of games itself, but any game that you buy on your iPhone, Apple takes 30% of, of what you pay. Um, and so it's become almost kind of by accident, really, a huge, huge force in the distribution of games. And something similar is true of Google, which, of course, runs the um, the App Store on Android phones. So they're involved. Microsoft, meanwhile, has been plugging away for quite a long time with the Xbox. It's, at the moment, trying to complete this mammoth acquisition of Activision Blizzard, which, if it goes through, would be one of the biggest tech deals in history, not just in gaming, but you know, one of the biggest ever tech deals, full stop. It's $69 billion they propose to spend on it. Um, who else? Amazon is doing game streaming, trying to get that off the ground. NVIDIA is doing that too. Um, over in China, we see Tencent making games a, a huge part of what they do. And then another interesting thing, actually, over in Hollywood, there's a kind of growing interest in games. We've got Netflix getting into gaming. Um, I don't know if you saw, but the other month there was a, a new Harry Potter game out that was produced by Warner Brothers, which you know we, we know more for Harry Potter movies, but actually the game in its first two weeks, made as much money as, as the most successful Harry Potter movie. Um, so everybody wants a piece of it, and the tech firms in particular are bringing these amazing budgets with them. I mean, I, I mentioned the Microsoft Activision deal earlier, um, but that these tech companies have budgets of a size which is just completely different to anything previously seen in, in the games industry and um, different to anything seen in Hollywood, certainly. So their presence is, is a real game changer. 
Yeah, you mentioned Hollywood there and a lot of people would have been watching The Last of Us recently, which of course uh, commend, started with uh, with with a game. And, and I think that that's another indication of the progression from, you know, a gaming um, offering to, to, to something that is much more mainstream. I just want to go back a little bit on that Microsoft deal that you mentioned there, because it does obviously have to get it through the, the regulators. Is this industry facing the same type of challenges in that sense as social media companies did uh, a number? of years ago because presumably that that online interaction um, has to have some sort of policing but who actually does the policing of that? Well I think there are a couple of things going on there I mean the, in terms of the kind of antitrust regulation I think the gaming industry now risks kind of paying the price for regulators previously mm. rather lax approach to social media so I think among a lot of regulators there's some regret about the fact that they let Facebook buy Instagram, for instance. They let Facebook buy WhatsApp without any intervention. Um, there's a debate about whether that was the right thing to do or, or not. But, you know, some regulators feel like for a long time they were a bit kind of slack on tech. And so it seems like now there's an effort to make up for that. And so things like this Microsoft Activision deal, I mean, I, most most people I speak to, see no problem with that. But as you say, it's hit problems with regulators in the US who are currently suing to stop it in the EU where they're considering it. And it, it, by all accounts, it sounds as though the EU is, is warming up to it. Um, and in the UK, which has put some obstacles up as well and, and remains to be convinced um, by all accounts. So you've got that. And then the, the separate controversy is to do with regulation in terms of what children see, and not just children as well, adults. Um you know, are they seeing content that's inappropriate? Are they being exposed to, you know, anonymous strangers online who these days can say or do unpleasant things to them in, in the metaverse? Um, so these are some of the other worries that games companies are having to deal with. And as you say, it increasingly resembles some of the controversy that we've seen in past years about social media. And Tom, what about homemade gaming? Um, you know the way we saw with YouTube and TikTok that there was people who became celebrities because of those platforms. Do you see a situation or a scenario where people can create their own games and become celebrity gamers in themselves and become quite rich off the back of something like that? Is that a possibility? Yeah, I mean, we already see it a bit. You know, the, uh, there are platforms like Roblox, like Minecraft, like Fortnite, where people can create their own, either their own actual games in the case of Roblox or their own kind of in-game experiences in, in Fortnite or their own creations in Minecraft. And then to varying degrees, they can monetize those things and sell them to other users. Um, we're not yet at a stage where it's as easy to make a game as it is to make, say, a video and share it on YouTube or TikTok or as easy as it is to make a, you know, a photo and share it on Instagram. But we're getting there. And a, a lot of people I spoke to wonder if AI, artificial intelligence, could make that job that much easier. Because mm. right now, making a game is difficult, or even you know, designing a level for a game is not something that most people could do. But Roblox, for example, have shown off a, a new feature that they plan to roll out soon, where you'll be able to design basic game features just using voice commands. So you can say things like, okay, put a car there, now make the car fly now make it rain, you know. Tom, thank you so much uh, yeah. for, for those insights today. I really enjoyed hearing them all. Uh, I would highly recommend that you check out The Economist and their special reports that they have on the gaming industry. But for now, that was Tom Wainwright of The Economist. Tom, thank you very much. Thanks a lot.
You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston. Now, there's no room for complacency when it comes to our economy. And with the ERSI warning about overheating, how did the government stem the tide on growing demand? Cliff Taylor joins us after the break. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, stronger than expected Irish growth combined with near full employment raises the possibility of overheating the Irish economy in the short term, so says the ESRI. So joining me to discuss how the state coffers look at the end of the first quarter and what we should look out for on the economic front in the months ahead is Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. Cliff, you're very welcome back to Taking Stock. Thanks, Mandy. Now, Cliff, we saw this week um, inflation uh, isn't as bad as many had expected it to be. What does that tell us about what's happening in the Irish economy right now? Yeah, there's so much, there's so much coming and going, Mandy, um, that it's hard to, uh, it's hard to take stock of it really. Uh, but it does seem like the fall in uh, in gas prices and wholesale energy prices is starting to uh, starting to take the edge off inflation, particularly as you as we compare year on year. Um, there's, I suppose, a, a bit of confusion about uh, how bad the inflation issue is going to be for the rest of this year uh, and how quickly inflation might come down. Uh, part of that relates to how quickly the energy companies are able to pass on price cuts to consumers. And that would obviously you know, have a pretty significant effect on inflation. And part of it is relates to... Um, the extent to which inflation is getting embedded in other areas of the economy, and particularly in whether it starts to be reflected more in wages and salaries as the year goes on. Mm. Uh, because as we know, unemployment's at a very low level. Companies are still scrambling for staff. Uh, and normally as growth slows, you know, unemployment goes up and the pressure comes off wages. But that's, that's not happening this time. The opposite is happening. Mm. Uh, so, so, so that's, I suppose, the inflationary concern. And that's the the flag that the ESRI put up this week in terms of inflation. Uh, but it is a volatile picture and um, the ESRI themselves presented some calculations uh, which kind of posited the, the possibility that inflation could could be falling a lot faster than the official figures mm. are showing us uh, because inflation is the kind of, the consumer price index figures are designed to kind of measure slow increases and slow declines in prices, which is what we've seen over most of most of recent history, um, but but obviously we've seen something quite different over the last couple of years. Yeah, now as you said, there's a lot uh, to get through uh, because there was a lot of different data that came out this week and a lot of advice to the government, some from the SRI and uh, more from the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council. Um, yeah. One of the things that the SRI was concentrating on in particular was warning about over-concentration or over-dependence um, on particular sectors in relation to corporation tax in the Irish economy. Yeah. I know you've been writing about this week and you do have a, a counterbalance view, but before we get into that, just take us through how valuable the corporation tax is to the Irish economy at the moment as it stands. Yeah, I mean, it's it's extraordinary. It's exploded in the last uh, few years. And if you look back kind of over a 10-year time horizon, it's gone from about 5 to £6 billion a year up to uh, over £22 billion last year. And that's well over a quarter of total tax revenues. You know, it's heading towards uh, one euro in every three, in, or three euros in every ten of of, of tax collected. Um, so not only is it a really big source of revenue and the second biggest now after income tax, mm. but it's been the real positive growth factor in the exchequer numbers over the last few years. Now we've seen strong trends in income tax as well. 
uh, that's really helped over the last year or two in particular. But corporation tax has been the star performer. And we're very reliant on it. And the Department of Finance, IFAC, ISRI, Central Bank, any of the expert uh, gurus that you want to look at have all warned that we can't rely on this continuing. And they've been all been warning about this for years now. And, you know, commentators like myself have, have, have been as well. Uh, but everyone's caution so far has proved wrong because it's just kept going in one direction, which, which is upwards. Mm. And you acknowledge that there are dangers of concentrating on those sectors, particularly they're referencing tech and pharmaceutical sectors, yeah. but there's pluses. So what are those pluses as you see it? Well, I suppose the, the, the dangers first are the obvious ones that you're too reliant on one sector that gets into trouble. And tech is the obvious example at the moment. And some of the big accountants are saying, look, tech company profits are going to be down this year and that could hit corporation tax. Uh, and then you're because there are so few companies involved, you're mm-hmm. also reliant on on, on, on on companies themselves, on the, the the health or otherwise of particular companies, particular big giant companies that have big operations here and pay a lot of tax. So there is quite an exposure there. For example, if you look at someone like Facebook, obviously they're laying off a lot of people at the moment. Their business strategy is facing some questions over the whole focus on the metaverse. The profits are under a bit of pressure. You know, still a huge and successful organisation, but per, you know could conceivably be less profitable in the next couple of years than it, than it has been in the previous. Mm. But you know, if if you kind of start stand back and then look at what are the what are the positive factors that could affect corporation tax over the next few years, one is the fact that the corporation tax rate is going to go up um, probably next year. The, the legislation will certainly be in place this year. So we're, we're likely to see an increase in, from 12.5% to 15% on the tax on these big companies. And we've kind of been focused all along on how much the OECD process is going to cost us in terms of tax revenue. But it looks like the bit that's going to go ahead first is the bit that's going to raise additional revenue for Ireland. That is the, the increase in the tax rate. Um, so, so, so that is a positive, mm. which could come in next year uh, and, and is likely to, or should come in next year, and is likely to offset perhaps the, the impact of the lower profits. And mm. the, the other factor I think which we need to look out for is that companies who move their vast intellectual property assets here, their copyrights uh, and so on, to, to Ireland uh, as part of the first process of, of OECD reform, they have been, the profits that have flowed directly from them have been protected by tax allowances uh, since they moved here. And those allowances are going to start to run out over the next few years. So if those intellectual property assets stay in Ireland, um, that is going to be another boost to, to Irish tax revenue. So what that would mean is um, there may be less profits being earned by these companies because of the factors and problems in the tech sector. Uh, we don't know, but more of the profit that they earn and more of the money that moves to Ireland could be could be, uh, could be subject to tax. Yeah, you're right. We we do tend to always focus on the negative, but yeah, sure. very little time spent on the upside. You've also been looking at um, the mechanics of how that increase in corporation tax might be applied and the government now considering a top-up tax. What exactly yeah. is that? Uh, who will it affect? And how did that come about? Yeah, it's an interesting one, you know, because when this was announced first, the big OECD deal, the 15% tax rate, uh, the expectation was that we would then have two corporate tax rates in Ireland, the 12.5% and the 15%. And the government here and the IDA, etc., were very keen to hold on to the 12.5% rate for, you know, for smaller companies and for other companies being attracted here, apart from the giants, uh, because you have to have global tax revenue or global revenue of over 750 million to have to pay uh, under the OECD agreement the higher rate. 
But as this has been worked through by the OECD and the EU, uh, countries have have been offered, I suppose, another another way of implementing the 15%, uh, which is to have what's called a top-up tax. So rather than having a second headline rate of 15%, everyone would pay 12.5%, uh, and then the big companies would pay a top-up, top up, if you like, to get them to 15%. Now, there are horrendous technicalities here in the difference mm. between uh, A and B, uh, and I'm not going to pretend that I understand all the twists and turns of that. I think, I think very few people do, and everyone's still working through it. But there are kind of reasons to believe that that could lead to, you know, an extra chunk of tax revenue being collected in Ireland. And there are also reasons to believe that it, 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 it's a little bit messy in terms of our relationship with the U.S. and big U.S. companies here uh, because, because, because of the problems in Congress uh, and, and loss of control by the Democrats of the House in the U.S., uh, President Biden hasn't been able to get his, uh, his tax program through, mm. and part of that tax program is the, is is the, the rules to bring the US in line, if you like, with the OECD OECD deal. Uh, and the possibility is, and James Yellen has been kind of uh, attacked on this in Congress by Republicans. The possibility is that the US could lose tax revenue to the benefit of countries like Ireland and other countries that apply this top up tax. Now, there's a way to run on this yet, uh, and there's a lot of twists and turns and a lot of negotiations still going on. But I think we all thought in 2021 that the whole OECD deal was tied down. It was all over by the shouting. Mm. Uh, but we now realise that uh, there's many a slip and that the implementing of the deal is really complicated and has a lot of twists. I did. Uh, I do think the last time you were here, you did reference that even though we got an agreement um, at EU level and the OECD, it still had a way to go and may not sure. pass through the American system. So maybe that's where we're at. I heard somebody suggesting that this extra tax or uh, top up tax could be maybe introduced as a levy. Um, and, and we're seeing increasingly that there's different frameworks on levies and taxes coming from Europe. Are you detecting any fear from industries that levies and additional taxes would suddenly become the norm? and that, that it might frighten investors who look essentially for stable tax environments. Yeah, um, I think Ireland was happy that the 15% thing was finally tied down mm. and subject, subject to the uncertainties that, that I've been talking about there and there are still some uncertainties to be tied down. Not, not Ireland or Europe's fault, I think, in this case. But yes, I do think businesses are worried about increasing taxes. Uh, I think, you know, for example... Everyone, I think, accepts, uh, including the business lobby, perhaps, uh, that employers' PSI is going to rise, increase fairly significantly over the next couple of years, next four or five years, perhaps. Um, but listening to politicians outside of the tax plans, I think the money that might be raised from that is probably being spent three or four times over at this stage. Mm. And businesses are saying, look, we have increased PSI, uh, where there are increased rules in terms of sick leave, uh, etc. That 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 are being uh, are being introduced here, and gradually there are a lot of extra costs being put on Irish businesses at a time when personal tax, as we know here, is already at a reasonably high level. So yeah, I think that is a concern for businesses. Mm. Uh, but can I see anything be done about it in terms of decreasing the personal tax burden? Not really. Um, maybe a bit of shuffling around in the numbers, uh, maybe a bit of show business in the budget. But in terms of the underlying tax burden on people I, I, I think that's only going one way and that's going to and that's upwards 
Mm. Well, on the corporation tax front, for sure, big big calls ahead for for Michael McGrath in the coming months. If you're just sure. tuning, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to me, Mandy Johnston. This is News Talks Taking Stock, and I'm talking to Cliff Taylor about the economic conditions in Ireland at the moment. Cliff, I just want to turn uh, to the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, who was the second, I suppose, big advisory um, uh, paper that was out this week, advising government on uh, all sorts of things. But one thing that struck me was their their warning about pensions um, and I recall back in the day you know the um, pension investment fund being set up and then it was used uh, for the bailout and we're, we seem to be repeatedly having the same conversation warning about pensions and, and again asking the government to put some of that windfall corporation tax by and another suggestion they had was about raising PRSI a la the Canadian model. What did you make of their suggestions and how politically tenable do you think some of the options that they gave are? Yeah, um, I, I think in fairness to the Fiscal Advisory Council, they've been, they've been kind of consistent on, the, on this one. And they warned the government uh, a while back uh, that if the pension, if the, the age of, of which people qualify for the state pension wasn't increased, uh, as had originally been planned, but is now being abandoned, uh, that it was going to lead to financial problems down the road and a financial hole because, as we know, we have an ageing population uh, and that ageing population means that the state pension bill is going to rise really significantly uh, over the coming years. Uh, so, so so that is a problem. And uh, I think what the um, Fiscal Advisory Council had worried about or had kind of examined in their latest work, well, was, well, look, if nothing is done about that in the short term, uh, then the generation, you know, my age group and, and people a few years younger or older than me are going to be able to retire as happily uh, at a relatively young age without paying any extra extra tax. And the burden of that is going to fall on people who are in younger age groups at the moment uh, and have longer working life ahead of them. Uh, and that's basically a fairness issue there. So they're suggesting that PRSI be gradually increased as a way of establishing a, a, a pension fund, if you like, that would help to pay the bills and lead to more intergenerational equity, if you like. Uh, to answer the second part of your question, uh, not very well, I suppose, mm. would be how this would go down politically uh, because people hate, hate extra charges. Uh, but, you know, we have, we have kind of got a bit of a free ride uh, over the last seven or eight years in terms of tax from the other thing we were talking about earlier, the higher, big increase in corporation tax. And whatever kind of suppositions you make, you just can't rely on that kind of huge growth continuing. Mm. Uh, and on the other side of the equation, we do have an aging population. We do have a need to pay for climate change. Uh, we do have a need to pay for all these kind of longer term issues uh, that are coming into focus now. And, you know, it either means cutting spending elsewhere or increasing taxes. And you know, in an area when, in an area when it's hard to uh, to talk about uh, cutting spending in any area, well, you probably are talking about more revenues. And I think if you look at the work of the Commission on Tax and Welfare, uh, which published its report last year, uh, it lays it lays out the case very clearly, and it says, look, we are starting our work from the position of raising more tax for the exchequer over the next kind of medium to long term because there's no question mm. but that's what it's going to need. So these are the kind of questions that are going to have to be addressed in some way and um, it's going to be interesting to see, for example, in the run-up of the next general election how the different parties uh, kind of slice and dice this or do they try to ignore it completely because I just don't think it's 
would be mm. credible to come forward and you know go for election on 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 a platform of big tax cuts for for middle earners because uh, I just don't think it's going to happen. Absolutely, and yeah, we seem to be much as we'd all love it. Much as we'd all love it, but we're definitely in the political cycle of of yes at the moment. Just finally and very yes. briefly, because time has run time has run out on us again, Cliff. Just very briefly, at the end of the first quarter, how are the government doing? What are the big things we should look out for uh, on the economy front for the for the rest of the year? Well, they do. I mean, they're ahead of target in terms of their uh, of their finances. Uh, I think the Department of Finance did the uh, trick would be the wrong word, perhaps, but did what they've done over the last five or six years and, and took a conservative view, and that and that the figures are now being beaten, and and you know everyone is happy. Um, so I think the first thing we should look out for is the uh, corporation tax returns in the middle of the year, particularly in June. June, yeah. When we'll get the first kind of indication of how this year is looking. Uh, so th- I think that in terms of the sector finances this year, that's the first big indicator. And I suppose how the tech, the whole tech situation on the jobs in that sector um, pan out, it looks like gains are kind of matching losses so far. Uh, it, it'll be interesting to see if that's, if that's the case as we go on. So, I, you know, I suspect the exchequer numbers will be ahead of target and, and the economic issues are the ones the ones that are going to stay in the headlines are the ones that are in the headlines already, the housing issues. Being, being right up there, right left the centre, if you like, uh, as, as the one that uh, is going to challenge the government. Yeah, well, we'll, uh, we'll see in June whether or not those big players are making less money or more money than next year. I think I know the way it's going to go, but we'll be back, to you. We'll be back to you then, Cliff. But for now, that's Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. Thank you very much for joining us again today. Thanks, Mandy. You're listening to Taking Stock on News Talk with me, Mandy Johnston. And after the break, when business gets personal, things can get difficult. How to plan for succession in the family business, we'll discuss after the break. You're welcome back to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, that was, of course, the theme music from the hit show Succession, which is back on our screens at the moment. It's about a modern media magnet playing politics with succession in his own family. And it's nothing new, really, because family empires bring with them a particular dynamic that's unique to any other ordinary company business. So here to discuss the challenges of doing business as a family, I'm delighted now to be joined by Leadership and Communications Advisor and Supremo, Natasha Fennell, and Paul Kyo, author of the Family Business Book, Practical Tips to help family and business work well together. You're both very welcome. Thank you. Now, Natasha, I'm going to start with you uh, because I know you've watched the first episode of Succession and that's what's brought us all here today. So I saw this quote earlier in the week uh, from Carl Jung, of all people. It says, where love is absent, power fills the vacuum. And it got me thinking, like, is there any love in Succession, that programme? Or is it now all about power? Do you know what? First of all, I adore Succession. It is something of a of an experimental, amazing joy to watch. Um, there is love. There is there is loads of love um, in Succession because actually everybody wants validation, and in a family business, that's one of the complexities that comes into it. They all want validation from their father. That's actually the only single thing that they want, and they want recognition. Right? However, power gets in the way there. So validation and love are the two things they want, but power, but power actually gets in the way. So, mm. and, and the father, Roy, Logan, Logan, the father, he loves his children, but he doesn't know how to express it. He actually does love them. 
and I know that sounds perhaps not um, correct to a lot of people that are watching him, but he does love his children. Really? So, do you think so? I do. I do. I think he's very, he's very um, messed up. I think he's probably very dysfunctional. Um, this is his only way of being in the world. And he said that comes through in episode one of the new series. We won't give too much away there. I mean, he calls people economic units. That's mm. what he calls people, humans. He sees them as economic units, right? Mm. Um, but I think he does love his children. So, but, but this is his only way of expression. So that's uh, an important aspect of this. But uh, yeah, absolutely. I do. That's a really interesting take on it. Paul, have you been watching Succession? I have, yes. Yes, uh, it's, it's not necessarily... Um, reality in the norm of family businesses but it's for the neutrals I think um, it's great entertainment Now you've obviously studied business from a family perspective but what is the difference between an ordinary business and a family run business? Well fundamentally I don't think there should be a difference you know you need all the same criteria you need a good product you need good marketing you need good customer service so that's common to any business but I think where the difference is, is you're bringing another world into business, which is family. And that can be complicated. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. And Natasha, I know you're involved in family business yourself. How did you kind of approach it in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I think where, where there are people, there are problems. Where there are family, there's tons of problems. It's layered up in so many different ways. So I have a company called Stillwater with my brother Killian. And 20 years ago now, we nearly set it, nearly we set it up. And really what it was, was we were, we were coming at a point in our careers and our lives where we were very aligned. So it seemed the natural, next, next natural step. But I'll never forget the day, Mandy, when we sat in front of our solicitor or tax advisor. There was a whole load of them who sat in front of us and just looked at us and said, you do realise that most family businesses end up in court. And of course, we completely ignored all of that and we, we, we carried on. So we set up a business and there were two, two conditions to it that we agreed at the very beginning. One, if the family, if the business gets in the way of our relationship and spills into our family, we have to quit. I was determined that that wouldn't happen and we would quit. And so was he, but I was probably more likely to be the one to call it. And the second thing was that if either of us wanted to walk or to change the way we worked, we were also allowed to do that. And so over the last 20 years, we've managed to run a really thriving business. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's layers. I, I, I think, I mean, what, what really surprised me genuinely doing research for this item was that actually, and, and Paul, you'd be the expert on this, most bas- businesses in Ireland small, are run by families. Yeah. Take the family farm, take the local shop in every town and village, take the local cafe, and the biggest issue that a lot of these family firms actually really, really struggle with, and it's not just big corporates, it's succession. Mm. So it's in other words, who's going to take over the mantle when daddy or mommy dies, right, or the parent dies? Who then is, you know, going to lead that and they're vying, they're vying for power on that? And the second issue is harmony. Like actually, you know, the problems that, that it brings, the harmony in families, actually families getting on and the complexity of the decision making within a business when families are killing each other or vying. We've seen that in many business stories across Ireland and they're small and large, particularly some of the large ones, which we all know have been in the news over the recent years. And then the final one challenge, which I thought was really interesting, and Paul, I'm sure give a view on this as well, is finance. A lot of family businesses, as they're called, might have the perception that they're not as kind of viable and wouldn't be as 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 stable um, or as able to deal with uh, finance. Mm. Um, and so banks 
can be reluctant or financial institutions can be reluctant to lend them money and that's a huge, huge issue. So, so a family business in many cases is very, very complex. The final thing I'll say, Mandy, is there's a complexity of family baggage. So in my case, like Killian and I, we had, although we're very aligned on values and, you know, how, uh, um, what matters to us when it comes to a business, but we definitely had, just absolutely have had, um, rouse, you know, differences of opinion of where we might focus the business or where we might go with the direction of the business. And when you're rowing with a family member with regard to work, like all of your baggage is there behind you. Yes. You try not to bring it in. There's nowhere to hide. Exactly. Yes. So, so it's, it's a very complex, you know but the other. shocking figure of the number of family business that are out there is, is, was a surprise to me. Yeah, Paul, Natasha's raised a lot of really valuable issues here and family business is the most dominant form of business in the world and here in Ireland is the same. But I just want to go back to, to, to the initial thing that Natasha spoke about, which was setting up the business and clearly a business, a family business with great communication skills and setting out really solid boundaries. But I guess that's not always the case. No. Uh, well, I think what happens is um, a lot of family business are in traditional industries like construction, hospitality, uh, service industries, um, transport and that. And they're generally set up by an entrepreneur, traditionally uh, male and uh, changing, obviously, now. But the Logan Roy types are still around and I think the the key uh, as we said earlier is um, a business really has to be set up on uh, family values. Family values are the glue that keeps everything together. So you must have a conversation about what's important to you, you know, like honesty, integrity, respect, equality, these sorts of values. And you see in the program succession they really don't have any values at this stage. Yeah, they're, they're, a bit, are, they're a bit void of a moral compass now, the lot of them, aren't they? Exactly. And that comes from, to uh, some extent, greed, um, but also, uh, I think, lack of communication. So the, the father has never really sat them down and said, here's my vision for the business. I'd like you to be involved. Um, I'd like you to go and get these skills and come back and join the family business. And my long-term view is I, I want to hand it over uh, to one of you or all three of you. And the other aspect in the program is he keeps changing his mind, mm. which adds a level of anxiety and nervousness and hurt and mistrust all into, which makes great drama. Yeah. But it wouldn't be... Uh, a recipe for success in real life. No, Natasha, values and ethics and morals, they're all lovely, but they don't pay the bills. At the end of the day, you've got to have people who do the job. And you see that tragic figure in succession of Kendall Roy, the son who thinks he should, but he's the only one who thinks he should. And then, as Paul says, the father spends all his time you know, setting them against each other. What about sibling rivalry uh, in that family dynamic? Well, the first word that strikes me is entitlement. 
They have an extraordinary, and this again is an issue when it comes to, to, to the next generation. The fact that you are assuming a position um, within the family and business. You haven't built the business at all. Nothing. Yeah. And, and that does come through in the next series, which I think they're, they're going to explore that theme. So that's what Kendall is. He's totally entitled. But as it happens, so are the other two. So actually, you know what, Paul? I think they do have values there. They have power. Power is the value. And power is the, the value that binds them together in that dysfunctional way. But the sense of entitlement is what makes me laugh the whole way through this series, you know. Paul, do you see that often that uh, when you when companies are dealing with or not dealing with succession, as, as you said earlier, uh, how do you what advice would you give to, to companies to actually start doing that, to start planning it? Well, there are statistics um, by the Family Business Network and others that say that nearly 70% of family business in Ireland don't have an agreed succession plan. So that's a frightening statistic that you could run a business would not have a plan for the future. You might have a business plan. But the advice is it's never too early to start. So you need to be able to find the forum to have it. It's not really a Sunday lunch and suddenly it drifts on into who's going to run the business and then an almighty row happens. It has to be structured and uh, it does take time and it's not a straightforward process. It maybe gets a little bit of momentum and then dies a bit. Um, But the key is that everybody's opinion uh, needs to be listened to within that family from the mother, all the children, everybody that's a stakeholder in the family. They may not be necessarily a stakeholder directly in the business, but they need to be all involved. Mm. And I think they, the, my advice uh, is try and get somebody neutral to manage that conversation. So me- mediate, because most families that try it on their own, it breaks down into an unholy row very quickly. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Paul Keogh, author of The Family Business Book, Practical Tips to Help Family and Business Work Well Together, and Natasha Fennell of Stillwater Communications. Natasha, I know that you're a big fan of the media. I know you're a big fan of politics as well. There's other very famous families whose drama has played out in public and uh, I'm thinking in particular, I suppose, of, of the Kennedy clan. Like, we love to watch family dramas, don't we? We do. We do. Unfortunately, we like to see others, you know, fail, fight, um, vie for power. Um, and and we we probably are somewhat, you know, think our life is, is, is bad, but actually theirs is much worse. Mm. Or our life is... Uh, and there's, a, there's, there's that nosiness and that curiosity about about dynamics, family dynamics, no matter what it is, you know. Mm. But just, just one other point there that I want to go back to, and Mandy, just that, that with regard to, to, to companies setting up and, and family businesses. Germany is an interesting model. Germany, the majority of the companies that are there, there's a huge number, again, of family-owned businesses there. But actually, different to Ireland, their pattern is that they keep the family the business in the family for generations. Mm. So the intent of what the business is going for. So a lot of families, and it's particularly common in Ireland, um, where we, we, we might after generations then set up the business to sell, right? So it depends on the intention behind what the end result. Our company, frankly, is a lifestyle business. Mm. We're not go, I'm not looking at anything down the line, you know? So that is a different factor as well in terms of what one intends to do. So therefore that would dictate what would happen in the next generation or the next um, who would take up the business after? That's a you know? really, that's a really interesting point. And Paul, I'll bring you back in here because a lot of businesses actually 
historically have evolved rather than been set up, created and have a destination in mind. Um, is there any advice you can give to people who may be from family businesses uh, tuning in to, to talk uh, or sorry, to set them on the right course for that type of planning that Natasha is, is talking about? Well, I, I think the, the key is really start with the family side. It may seem obvious, but families that don't get on are generally don't run successful family businesses. So, you know, I don't know why people think if we're all killing each other as a family, we mistrust each other, we betrayed each other, you know, we bullied each other, um, and then suddenly we're in business together that it's going to be any different. Now, I'd like to also point out that there are very successful family businesses out there. And, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. And some of the most successful families in the world, companies in the world like Walmart, big companies, BMW, they have started very small. Walmart was a mom and papa store, and it's the biggest um, retailer of that kind in America. So it, it can work. But generally speaking, it's down to communication. And the family has to keep talking. They have to keep expressing their views, particularly the next generation that come into a family business with different skills. Some of them are very tech savvy. Uh, the older generation might be still struggling to use a mobile phone, never mind to think of online selling or whatever. And like Logan Roy, you have to be open to, you know, listen to your uh, next generation. Now, unfortunately, in succession, they make the three of them out to be complete idiots. And that doesn't help the image for next generations listening out there because often the next generation have taken the business and grown it leaps and bounds from what the founder did. And and so that's, you know, as we were saying earlier in Germany, and that businesses can be 100, 200 years old mm. in family businesses. Uh, we're new to the industrial um, revolution here so we don't have family businesses that old, but we have some great family business like Flavins and others that are now into uh, multi-generations. And uh, they have learned and I think sought advice, particularly in the area of communication, um, writing down family charters, which is just another way of saying what's important to yeah. us as a family. Uh, abso- and, absolutely. And the fact that there are 97% of businesses here in Ireland that our family business is a testimony to, to how successful they can be. I'm not sure we'll have another programme that is all about that today. We're just revelling in the dysfunction of the family business. So, <laughs> Natasha, can I leave you with a final word on this? You've done it. You've made a very successful business with you and your brother. Um, can you leave the listeners with just your best piece of advice. Yeah, and I was thinking about that when I was listening to Paul. The biggest word that I would use is respect. I hold my brother as my my business partner in such high regard. I think he's is really, really talented and I really like working with him. So to go back to your point, Paul, first you need to respect and highly regard um, the person that you're working with and like them. The second thing, the values are really important. So, you know, the fact that you're aligned on what matters to you, there will be differences. And by the way, they do test you. Absolutely. But if you have the overarching objective of the belief in the business and the belief in what you're doing and the belief in the work that you're offering with your colleagues, like we have a, we have a team with us, um, that will get you through. And the day you lose that, you need to leave, but you need to be honest with yourself. 
and you be honest with the person you're working with. So the biggest one for me is respect and high regard. Think about that. The person you're thinking in any business, whether it's your family or whether it's your, your business partner or somebody you're working with, do you hold them in high regard mm. and do you hold them in respect? And honestly, that will get you through because that means that you're dealing with it in a professional way and not in an emotional brother, sister or husband, wife way. They're very different ways to be at work. Well, I think that word respect is a great way to end this. Thank you both very much for joining me today. That was Paul Kyo, author of The Family Business, Practical Tips to Help Family and Business Work Well Together and Natasha Fennell of Stillwater Communication. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Mandy. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app powered by GoLoud. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Hugo De Silva on sound. Next week, our friend Joe Miller from the Financial Times will be joining us to talk all things Donald Trump. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.